I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 12 this evening. Revelation chapter 12, and we want to read, read God's Word under the heading of the woman, the red dragon, and the child king. The woman, the red dragon, and the child king from Revelation chapter 12. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is the Word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. My most dear friends, Advent means the arrival of And this Christmas Day, we celebrate the arrival that is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice this day that our Savior has come. But of course we know, as Christian people, that the story does not end in the manger scene. But in fact, Jesus Christ will grow up. Luke 2 We've been spending our Advent series in Luke 1 and 2. Luke 2 will say that Christ will grow in wisdom and stature before men. And ultimately, He will lay His life down for you and for me. The church has long celebrated Advent. Not just as the coming of the babe in the manger, but it is also the coming of our Christ. The coming of our salvation. The coming of our forgiveness. And the coming of God's grace. But as we noted in our Advent series this year, this was not what the Jews wanted, nor were they expected. They could scarcely believe, as we just sang, that a baby meek and mild could also be the Messiah prophesied. You see, the prophecies of old said that Christ would come in strength and in power. That He would subjugate His enemies. That He would destroy all evil. But then as they look at that baby in the manger, they don't see it lining up. You see, what they failed to understand is that in God's plan, the Messiah would come twice. There would be Two advents. In his first advent, he would come as a humble babe, meek and lowly, to save his people by his grace. But then in his second advent, his coming again 
He will come with the hosts of heaven. And every knee will bow to Him. And every tongue will confess His name. You see, Christmas is a wonderful time of year. It's a wonderful time when family members can get together. We can reflect on this Christmas story. And I don't remember where I learned this. Maybe it was from when I was a youngster in church not that long ago. Is that every Advent we need to be reflecting on two truths. Two truths need to capture our mind when considering Christ's birth. The first truth you already know well. 2,000 years ago, Christ was born meek and mild, to save us from our sins. That's what we're celebrating. The second truth, in the future, Christ will come again. And He will come as a conquering King. He will come with the hosts of heaven. The dead in Christ will be raised and we will ascend with Him unto heaven. And then He will bring heaven down to earth. That is, in a sentence, He's coming again. We just read from Revelation chapter 12. Often considered the center of the book of Revelation. And it's not hard to see why. It is a vision about the birth of Christ who was promised and nurtured in the womb of the church. Born to save His people. It is Christ who triumphs over evil. He crushes the head of the dragon. He will rule over all nations and protect His church until He comes again. Revelation 12 talks about the two advents of Christ. He has come once and He is coming again. That's the theme of our time together this evening Christ came to save and is coming again to establish His kingdom. He has come once to save and He is coming again to establish His kingdom. And what we're going to see here in this vision is there's actually three characters. There's the woman, the dragon, and the child king. The woman, the dragon, and the child king. Let's first look at this woman. The first character we're introduced to in this vision, verse 1, is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And this vision, it says at the beginning of verse 1, was to be a great sign for John and for his readers. Now, I want to ask a question. A sign of what? And what I want to show you is, in these first two verses, this pregnant woman is a sign of the humility of Christ in His first coming. The humility of Christ in His first coming. But before we get to that child, we're confronted with a glorious sight, aren't we? Of this wondrous woman. John says this woman is pregnant, clothed gloriously with the sun, a crown of twelve stars, and standing upon the moon. We get a very cosmic picture. Sun, moon, 
and stars. The whole galaxy is used to describe her glory. And this is a very symbolic picture representing someone, but who is she representing? is the question on the mind of the reader, or at least it's supposed to be. And there are two views, really, about who this woman is. Generally, there are two interpretations. The first interpretation is quite common, and that's the view of the Roman Catholics, which is that this is a vision concerning the Virgin Mary. This is a vision about Christ's first coming. There's a pregnant woman, so the logical connection seems to be that this pregnant woman must therefore be Mary. It seems logical. But the second view, the second interpretation of who this woman is, is that it's it's not representing one woman in particular, but instead represents a multitude of people. Represents actually the covenant community. It represents the church. The church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Now, you may find this conclusion more convincing when you look at the way that she is dressed. It says in verse 1 that she is dressed, she is clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. Which, if you remember, the book of Revelation is a book of signs. Young children, if you go home and you try and you attempt to read the book of Revelation, you may find yourself quite confused at this book. At first glance, it's very challenging to understand and to decipher what this book is talking about. But what we need to know about the book of Revelation, John actually tells us in chapter 1, is that we need to know the Word of God in order to understand this book. You see, there are some people who would like to say when reading the book of Revelation, our dispensational friends, that we read this book and then we turn to the world in order to understand it. But this book actually is a reflection of what the Bible has already taught us. Look at the way that Mary is dressed and we need to ask the question is, does the Bible already tell us what it means? She's clothed with the sun, the moon, and the stars which the Bible student must remember is exactly what Joseph dreamt of back in Genesis 37. You remember when Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, had a dream? And he says, Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Here we see that same idea is what clothes her. But when Joseph says this to his family, remember their reaction? Were they overjoyed with what Joseph told them he dreamt about? No, it says they were indignant. Jacob even says, what is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground? Jacob is saying, youth say that that sun and the moon and the stars represent me and your family and your brothers that we will bow down to you? Here this woman is clothed in the same language that represents Israel. 
the covenant people. Not only this, but she is said to have a crown with twelve stars on it. Twelve throughout the book of Revelation actually represents the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of old. In fact, if you have a Bible with me, I'll encourage you to flip with me to Revelation chapter 21. Beginning in verse 12, it it makes this very clear that the number 12 represents God's people. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, it says it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Here, the writer of Revelation is using the number twelve to refer to the totality of God's people. Referring to the twelve tribes of Israel. And the twelve Apostles. Here she is being represented to us as the people of God. Not only this, but throughout the Old Testament, a woman, a restored woman, is often used as a descriptor, if you will, often used as a representation of the restored people of God. Solomon says in his book, The Song of Songs, Who is this who looks down like the dawn? Describing his wife. Beautiful as the moon. Bright as the sun. Awesome as an array with banners. He is saying, my wife looks so beautiful, it's as if she looks like the sun, the moon, the stars. This, of course, represents the church. Loved by Christ. Isaiah, the prophet, often spoke of the restored Israel as a woman, as a bride, clothed beautifully. Just in Isaiah 62 alone, there are five prophecies that Israel is like a bride adorned with a crown. See, I think this woman here in Revelation chapter 12 is actually representing the covenant community. It represents the seed of the woman that through whom the Messiah Himself would come. Of course, Mary is a part of that covenant community, but it represents the people of God. But we see that she's not only clothed gloriously, but she's actually enduring great affliction. She is as you expecting mothers might not want to hear this evening, crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The fact that John repeats it twice really shows that the church, upon waiting for the birth of the Messiah, endured great affliction. That Greek word for birth pains literally means tormented. She was being tormented as she awaited the birth of her child. The church was being tormented as they awaited the Messiah to come. And many people don't know this, but even still today, Christianity 
is the most persecuted religion on the faiths of the earth. Here is the idea of these first two verses. The church was and is weak. And we'll see in a moment that compared to the great dragon, her child is weak. But this isn't the end of the story. You know, one word of application when we consider this woman standing on the moon, one commentator notes that just like how we can stand out at night and see the moon and the stars, we can wave our arms around and we can yell at it and we can try to do everything we can to throw it off its course. Will the, move, will the moon move? Will it change its direction based on how we feel about it? The answer, of course, is no. And so this commentator says, doesn't that remind us about the immovability of the church? Just like how nothing on earth we can do can alter the course of the moon or the stars or the sun, so is the church of God unmoved in the course of God that He has for her. You know, another word of application is simply this. She's clothed in the glory of the sun. But if you flip back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, it says about Jesus Christ, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. So does Mary, or excuse me, does the church as it's revealed in the first two verses have a glory in and of itself? No. The church simply reflects the glory of Christ. Now, I'm no scientist, but I hear that the moon itself has no light in and of itself, but only reflects the light of the sun. Likewise, the church is made to reflect the light of Christ. Even young children who are here, you are called to reflect the light of Christ. A good example of this is what was the, your favorite Christmas gift you got this year? You might say, oh, my mom and dad got me a PlayStation. Or some makeup. Or a four-wheeler. And hopefully a ski-doo. Get through this Christmas snow. And the answer would be, to be a little smart, no, it's not the best gift you got. The best gift that we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the indescribable gift. That's the greatest gift we've been given. And we have an opportunity now to reflect that light of Christ to the world. And so even little children can tell others when they're asked, what is your favorite gift that you've been given? You can respond, I've been given the Lord Jesus Christ. Reflect His light this Christmas season. We see that this woman is not only the only character involved in this vision, but we see the second character of this vision is actually a great red dragon. Notice that this dragon, John says, is also a sign But the sign is not great like the vision of the woman is great. Look what he says in verse 3. The dragon himself is great. 
little uh, friends and families, I bet you know this Greek word. You don't have to be a Greek philologist in order to understand what this word means. The word for great is mega. This dragon is mega. Which means it's big. It's huge. It's magnificent, if you will. And so in this vision, John sees this beautiful pregnant woman in space and there's also this great, huge, red dragon. And so if the woman represents the church, who does the dragon represent? Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Here it's very clear that this dragon in this vision represents Satan. And so in this vision, the woman is clearly afflicted. She's clearly weak. The picture here of the dragon, conversely, is one of strength. One of might and power. We already noted that he's called mega, meaning great or large, but notice the devil's power. Behold a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, which of course means crown. If you flip with me in your Bible, sorry, anytime you're in the book of Revelation, you have to flip around to Revelation chapter 5, which is the revelation of the resurrected Lamb. When speaking of the Lamb, it says that He had seven had excuse me seven horns and seven eyes to symbolize the lamb's complete power and the lamb's complete knowledge of God but in a similar way here the devil has in revelation 12 seven heads and seven crowns which symbolizes his completeness, not of power and knowledge of goodness, but his completeness of evil. In congregation, don't we know in our world today that many people joke about the devil? The devil is even attempted to be made cute. Think of those little Halloween costumes or sports teams named after the devil. But Satan is no laughing matter. Satan would love us to forget about his power and his dominance over the world. He is at work everywhere around us. And the Bible is actually clear that Satan does have real strength. See, the beginning of verse 4 describes a real event. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. See, prior to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, we know that there was a war in heaven. Satan was once an angel, described as a glorious angel in the Old Testament. And both Isaiah and Ezekiel describe the story where he rebels against God and he convinces a third of the angels to rebel against God in a bid to overthrow God for His power. The fall of Satan and the demons is the backdrop 
to the fall of Adam and Eve. Satan had challenged God and lost. He was cast down to the earth and he did the worst thing he could do after having fallen. Tempt mankind to sin. This is Satan's challenge to God. And the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth so that when she bore her child she might devour it. Here is Satan's mission. To destroy Jesus Christ. But what is God's answer? God's answer to Satan's challenge. To destroy salvation. To take God's power. To take His glory. God's answer to Satan's challenge is Christmas. The first coming of Christ. You see, in Revelation chapter 12, the center of this of this book here is Genesis 3.15. This isn't the first time we've heard about the serpent of old. See, back after Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God preached the Gospel. Preached the Gospel. That one would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But do you remember, my friends, who the first Gospel was preached to? Who did God proclaim that Gospel to? In Genesis 3, verse 14, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God proclaims to Satan, the Gospel, that a child will come through the church and He will crush you. God's answer to Satan's challenge to the stealing of angels from heaven to the tempting of people into sin is to send His Son into the world. His answer to Satan's challenge is Christmas. That thousands of years later, even though Satan would do everything he can to thwart the mission of Christ, that a woman would be pregnant by the Holy Ghost, who would give birth to a child, who would live a perfect life, who would die under Pontius Pilate for the sake of our sins. God proclaimed to Satan that story, that Christmas story. And here John has a revelation of how that worked out in human history. That Christ came and He would do everything He could to try to take Christ from this earth. Congregation, be reminded that we are not called to be friends of Satan. We are called to be friends of with Jesus Christ. Don't play games with the evil one. This vision also describes Satan as strong and mighty in power. I think especially of our young people here this evening, you may be frightened by this idea. Scared about the power of Satan. But be reminded this evening that Satan has a weakness. James says in chapter 4, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God and God will come near to you. The big, mega, red dragon tucks his tail and leaves when Christians go to God in prayer. Let us be reminded that Satan's plans will always be thwarted by those who look unto God for their salvation. So we see this child has been prophesied coming into the world. And then in verses 5-6, through we see His birth. The third and final character of this story revealed in those final two verses. The child king. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Like I said this morning, this may not be the Christmas story that we read around the table on Christmas Eve. It may not be what's put to music in our Christmas hymns, but what's being described here in this vision is Christmas. The first coming of Christ. Who is born here but the Messiah? If you remember back in Psalm 2, a psalm we sing every once in a while here at this church, a psalm that speaks of the coming of the Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ. What does it say in that psalm? It says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Here, John is saying, The Messiah has been born. The Messiah has come. This is the promised one of old. The one who will crush the head of the devil. He will triumph over the dragon. And the image that John is seeing in heaven is that this child almost has no chance in life, does he? She's laboring, crying out in birth pains, and the image of the dragon is there just waiting. Waiting by the birthing bed. Ready to take the child as soon as he comes out of the womb and destroy him. You see, Christmas is a wonderful time of celebration for us. But as soon as Christ was born, didn't He have a target on His back? You know the story. Did not Herod, King Herod, make an attempt on his infant life? Did not Satan in Luke chapter 4 seek to have Christ thrown off the Temple Mount? Did not Israel seek to make Him king by force? Did He not sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane? Was He not condemned? Was He not crucified? Was He not buried in a barren tomb? Satan made every attempt at the life of Christ. Salvation seemingly impossible. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. This is speaking of a radical intervention by God. The right when Satan thought he had Christ in his jaws, ready to devour Him, God intervened. And He was caught up to heaven. Verse 5 is a 
one verse summary of the life, the death, and then the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven. The devil wanted to destroy Christ, but by Christ's birth, his life, death, and resurrection, he triumphed over the devil. The serpent's head was crushed. Christ triumphed over evil. And now he has all the power. And the woman fled from the devil into the wilderness to a place prepared by God in which she would be nourished for 1,260 days. In the book of Revelation, the concept of time can be quite a bit of an interesting study. Elsewhere in the book, this period of 1,260 days can be measured as 42 months, verses 11, 12, and 13, verse 5. Or again, in verse 12, chapter 12, it'll say time, times, and a half. But what's being communicated in all of these measurements of time is that in the fullness of time, it's the fullness of time. That is, she, the church, will be nourished and protected until the fullness of time. Until Christ returns. Notice who cares for her. She goes to a place prepared by God. She is nourished and protected by Jesus Christ. Just as Israel was nourished and protected in the wilderness before entering the promised land, so the church will be cared for by Christ until His promised return. What's being described in these first six verses of Revelation chapter 12 is that Christ has come. He has triumphed over evil. He has taken away the power of the devil. Come once in His humanity to die. But He will come again. He will come to establish His kingdom. Let us not forget this Advent season that Christ is coming again to conquer. To conquer sin. To conquer evil. To overthrow the devil. And even here now, we may feel the weakness of being part of Christ's church. We do feel weak. Weak in and of ourselves. But we will hear that trumpet sound with the shout of an archangel and in the twinkling of an eye we shall be raised to new life in Christ. He has done it once. Coming to save our souls. But He is doing, He will come again to save our bodies. To save this world. And to overthrow the evil one. And to take us with Him to heaven. This Advent season, let us both look back to the birth of Christ, but also look forward to the life to come and the Messiah to come. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we do give You thanks this evening for the Messiah who has come in that manger scene, who has come, Lord, to give us new life, to save our souls, but Lord, who is coming again 
to ransom us from the grave. We pray, O Heavenly Father, that we would look unto the second coming of Christ by faith. And that even, Lord, as we meditate this day on the Christmas story, that we would look unto Jesus Christ and be comforted. That even though the church may at times seem so weak and frail, though Satan at times seems so great and mighty, that, Lord, he has overcome and he will overcome all evil again. And it's in him we put our hope and trust in this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.